Sup, freaks? It's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. Incredibly dense, entertaining, informative episode with Jamie McCavity from Corn Mint talking about Bitcoin mining, the power markets down here in ERCOT, where things are, where they're going. Jamie is probably one of the most underrated Bitcoiners in the world right now. His knowledge of Bitcoin mining in the power markets is incredibly expansive. And I think you're going to learn a lot in this episode. I certainly did. It was a great rip. I'm, I'm giddy right now. Great way to start the Monday morning. You know what else is happening? Bitcoin ripped above 50K while we were talking. Some of you are out there. Maybe you don't have Bitcoin yet. Maybe you're just coming to this podcast. You saw it rip above 50. You're like, what? what's going on with Bitcoin? I need to find the best Bitcoin podcast out there. I found TFTC, a Bitcoin podcast on my podcasting app. I'm listening now. I'm going to learn about Bitcoin. How do I get Bitcoin? You go to river.com. You buy Bitcoin. River is a Bitcoin-only company that built their own infrastructure. They don't have any third-party dependencies. They own everything. This is the type of Bitcoin company that you want to be buying Bitcoin from. They built their own wallet infrastructure. They built their own Lightning wallets. You can DCA using River, so you can dollar cost average. You set it and forget it. If you do that, you're not going to pay any fees on those buys. You can set limit orders. Maybe you're like, ah, it's at 50K now. It's going to go lower. River makes it easy to set a limit order. You, you're like, hey, I think it's going to go to 47.5. I want to set a limit order there to buy. You can do that on River very easily. River has River links, which are an easy way to gift Bitcoin. You put in an amount, say, hey, I want to give somebody $100 worth of Bitcoin. You plug that in, it produces a link. You can text that, email it, DM it to somebody. They click the link and they can sweep the funds either to their River account or a wallet of their choice. It's a beautiful thing. The best and easiest way to gift Bitcoin. So go to river.com slash TFTC and sign up today. You're going to get $5 worth of Bitcoin when you sign up. If you buy $1,000 worth, you're going to get $15 worth of Bitcoin as well. This is the way to do it, freaks. Bitcoin's at 50K. You need to get Bitcoin. Go to River. And then you can go down the hall to Unchained. Unchained is also a sponsor of this podcast. And they also have built their own infrastructure. Their whole company, their platform, revolves around two or three multi-sig so if you need to custody your Bitcoin after buying it, you go to Unchained, you set up a two or three multi-sig volt, it's a two or three volt, two or three multi-signature volt where you hold two keys, Unchained holds one. This is a collaborative custody model that eliminates single points of failure. Since you hold two keys, you can always move your Bitcoin. If you're ever in a pinch though, you need Unchained to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum, they can sign for you, collaborative custody. Having two keys, you can geographically distribute the keys and the seed phrases that back those keys up and have a very robust security setup that eliminates single points of failure. You may also be seeing the ETFs. Maybe the ETFs are driving us above 50. Who knows? The ETFs are not the best way to get Bitcoin. You want to hold your own Bitcoin, which Unchained makes very easy. Maybe you have an IRA and you're thinking about allocating to Bitcoin via the ETF and the IRA. Don't do that. Transition your whole IRA into Bitcoin using Unchained's IRA product where you can hold your own keys and hold spot Bitcoin the actual Bitcoin, on-chain Bitcoin. It's a beautiful thing. Go to unchain.com slash consultation. Set up a call with them. They'll teach you about their vaults. They'll teach you about their IRA product. They have a trading desk as well if you want to buy at Unchain and send it straight to cold storage. They make that very easy. You can do it there. Get on it today. Get off zero as Bitcoin's going above 50K. It's very important. Unchain.com slash consultation. Tell them that TFTC sent you. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at ZapRite. 
Are you a Bitcoiner? A Bitcoiner? Are you a Bitcoiner out there who isn't accepting Bitcoin as payment yet? Do you run a business or are you an independent contractor? It's time to start accepting Bitcoin as payment. If not you, then who? You got to get off zero on accepting Bitcoin. We need to do this. Zapright is the easiest way to accept Bitcoin as payment. You can sign up with just an email and be set up within minutes. With Zapright, you connect your wallet. Zapright never touches your funds and supports non-custodial and custodial wallets on chain and Lightning. Zapright makes the Bitcoin payment experience seamless while also allowing you to connect fiat payment rails like Stripe, ACH, or Square to receive Bitcoin side-by-side -side with fiat. You can do it all in one spot. You can send invoices. They have payment links. They have a WooCommerce integration, and they're working on more integration. So if you want to accept Bitcoin as a business, you can do everything you need to. And you will be able to do more in the future. I use ZapRite here at TFTC. It's how we invoice. Connect to my Stripe account, my ACH account, and my Bitcoin wallets. When we invoice people who advertise on this podcast, I send them a ZapRite invoice and they can pay in Bitcoin or fiat. If they pay in fiat, it's a little bit more expensive. An interesting you can do to incentivize people to pay you in Bitcoin. So go to ZapRite.com slash TFTC to sign up. When you do, you'll get a TFTC discount code. ZapRite costs $25 per month and there's a 20% discount for annual subscriptions. When you use the code TFTC, you'll get an incremental $40 off the annual plan. The time is now, freaks. Stop being complacent. Start investing in infrastructure to receive Bitcoin payments. Set up a ZapRite account. All you need is an email and some Bitcoin wallets. It's a beautiful thing. ZapRite.com slash TFTC. This trip was also brought to you by our friends at Bitcoin Talent Co. Bitcoin Talent Co. is a recruiting firm built for Bitcoiners, by Bitcoiners. Prices above 50K. Maybe your company is like, I need a Bitcoin strategy. What the hell am I doing? I, how, I need to find talent to come incorporate Bitcoin into my business. Maybe your Bitcoin company is like, hey, the price is over 50K. Our runway just extended because we have a good amount of Bitcoin on our treasury. Let's go hire some people to accelerate our growth so that we can bring about the Bitcoin standard. Go to bitcointalent.co, get set up with them if you're a company looking to hire the best talent that can help you build out Bitcoin infrastructure within your company. These guys know Bitcoin. They're not just some run-in-the-mill recruiting firm that's like, oh, we, yeah, we'll find you somebody. No. They understand Bitcoin on-chain, they understand multi-sig, they understand lightning, they understand mining, and they're consummate professionals that have had success in the past. Andy, the co-founder, was at Uber, helped take their team from 100 employees to 10,000 employees. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to find talent. So go to bitcointalent.co, sign up today, tell them the TFTC sent you. Enjoy your life. Enjoy this conversation with Jamie. I know I certainly did. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Mic check, one, two, one, two. Jamie, we're live. Microphone check. Jamie, conversing with our Jamie, Logan. Great. <laughs> Great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a long time coming. It is a long time coming. I've been wondering, you know, I've been wondering, when am I going to get on the show? But we, we had a good uh, riff 
on the Peter McCormack show. That was a great conversation. I was with Thomas over the weekend. Yes. We were reminiscing on that conversation. It was great, free flowing. God bless uh, Pubkey. God bless Pubkey. God bless America. God bless Bitcoin. God. We might hit 50K during this episode, during this recording. Yeah. Well, we've, we are over a trillion dollar market cap uh, officially, which is exciting. One T. One T. Deleting a zero, as they say. Or adding, adding, a zero. adding a zero. Adding a zero. Yes. Right. It's pretty crazy. It's happening rather quickly. It is. Yeah. The, uh, I think maybe we, we all may have underestimated the, the passive allocation machine of American public markets. Did you underestimate it yourself? Um, I did not. I did not. I, uh, I deal with, a, I have a lot of older friends and, I think that one thing that Bitcoiners underestimate is uh, the technical hurdle of not so much learning Bitcoin and and setting up a Bitcoin wallet, but the fear of that an older person thinks with regard to anything about a computer. I mean, how many how many kids you know friends that have to help their parents with their email? every time they come home you know, or get asked to solve a remedial computer issue. And the one characteristic of it is the, un, the uncertainty that they have around what happens if I click this button. There's like this fear that if I click this button, my whole email's gonna get deleted. It's, it's like that meme where the dude drags off his files to the trash can and his computer just evaporates in front of him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex exactly. That, that's a real technical hurdle. And how many, how many of these elder of our elders do you know that when you go to help them with their email, they have their password on a post-it note right on their right. right on their screen? Yes. Think of a Bitcoin. It's like, oh yeah, here's my private key. It's right here. Like the villain. Nolan Sorrento in Ready Player One. I watched that Thursday night. And his password is bossman69. <laughs> <laughs> and it's written on a post note right next to the... I didn't get through the whole the whole movie, but I watched like the first half before falling asleep. It's like oh, yeah, you probably missed the the part I'm referencing where they yeah. they hack his... I've seen it before. I was re-watching it. Okay, so yeah. I I've seen it like 25 times. Yeah. It's, it's a very... Bitcoin-esque. Yeah. Way. Prescient. There's a, um, a scene when they're doing an opening montage describing the success of this uh, VR, AR platform. And there's a, there's a currency, a digitally native currency within the world. And uh, it, the, I forget what the news clip says, but it's some kind of milestone that the, the market capitalization of the in-game currency has exceeded a, you know, create crazy value. Yeah. 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 The, uh, the winnings for that, uh, that tournament and ready player one, if you get all the keys, trillion dollars in stock. Yeah. Half, half a trillion, half, half a trillion. Yeah. Okay. Cause he says, I've seen it a lot. He says a half a million, uh, no, a half a trillion dollars. Yeah. Which it's 2035. That is way low considering all the inflation that we're going to yeah yeah i mean it's going to be like 50 trillion dollars if it were realistic yeah but the movie is based on a book that i think is 15 years old before 
M2 growth really, really started accelerating and compounding. Yeah. Do you think that's why the price is pumping right now? Because people are looking out at the world and be like, oh, they're going to have to print a shit ton more money. Or is it simply flows? I think it's flows. I think that China, um, I've been hearing a lot about the China situation. Uh, you know, the Chinese stock market is cratering. They are so indebted and their economy is stalling. Uh, and so the, the China print is coming. It's big. Yeah. And people are successfully escaping Yuan and Chinese stock markets into Bitcoin, despite the fact that China does not like Bitcoin. Yeah. There's a, uh, probably a lot of that is flowing through the Texas electricity market through <laughs> hosting contracts. Cause I think that is a loophole that works is if you buy an ASIC in China, send it anywhere else and run it and then pay a services contract in Renminbi, you, you know, you're effectively circumventing the capital control. Yes. And acquiring Bitcoin and acquiring Bitcoin. Yeah. On the back end. Let's talk about this. Cause this is a big, big theme mm -hmm. in the space right now. I think everybody in the mining industry knows there's a bunch of Chinese mm -hmm. that are either hosting with American companies or mining themselves. The media is beginning to portray this as a systemic risk to mm -hmm. the American economy potentially, but more specifically the American grid system. Are the Chinese attacking our grids? That media, you know, they are just, they have such a wonderful imagination, don't they? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, there's no, there's no grid attack. I mean, we know some of these firms personally, we know their leadership, their leadership is American. They're extremely sensitive to political risk. They're just, they're terrified. You know, these are people who were, were or are citizens of China under that quasi authoritarian regime. They're very inherently scared and skeptical of government. And so they are doing everything they can to be compliant. Um, the one thing I would say that is the most interesting and probably the least enduring component of this phenomenon with, with Chinese owned ASICs being operated at American operated facilities just for starters the high voltage infrastructure that's connected to the power grid is owned and operated by an american firm and then you're, you are prohibited under texas law to own and operate high voltage infrastructure in a chinese controlled entity so that's it's called the lone star infrastructure act um so that on its face is is illegal for anything like that so there's no chinese nationals who have the ability to destroy the power grid they also would would not want to because that's their bitcoin printing capital control circumventing machine the one thing that's strange about their behavior is they do not perform economic curtailment as a profit maximizing miner like like other like cormant um cormant's our bitcoin mining company we are a profit maximizing entity we are never attempting to consume electricity that exceeds the dollar per megawatt hour equivalent of our Bitcoin mine for any period. And so last year, just by the numbers, we were running 
30-ish joules per terahash fleet. That meant that in the west zone of ERCOT, we were online 90% of the year, and we were offline 10% of the year. And it, it's not exactly perfect because we avoided some of the coincident, the four coincident peaks to reduce transmission costs, so it wasn't always economically perfect, but it's a rough estimate of how many hours of the year, 90% of the hours of the year, you could profitably convert electricity in the, the Texas wholesale market into Bitcoin. 10% of the hours of the year, you couldn't. The, the peer group of other miners within Texas is not economically perfect. They are willing to overpay for power just to convert that into Bitcoin, which is really kind of a unique market dynamic. It is, it is not an economically rational market because the desire to circumvent capital controls and save in Bitcoin creates a premium, a slight premium on power. Mm -hmm. um, I do think it's going to go away because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, but yeah, that, that's one kind of interesting phenomenon. So why would, does it have to do with the capital controls, the, the reason for them doing this? Because they're afraid that if they were to sell that electricity for dollars and then have to convert it to Bitcoin and run into some problems trying to convert that. I think it comes from a bunch of uh, potential factors. You know, the, the default hosting agreement template is a 95% uptime agreement. And so... Um, there's some economic imperfection in that. That means that the, the the miner who is hosted is is paying more for electricity than they should, and the and the host is leaving money on the table. You know what, in our view, looks like a perfect hosting agreement is one that is constantly optimizing between the two and sharing the revenue between the host and the miner. You know, these there's not a bunch of Chinese guys who are sort of watching Load Zone West real time settlement in ERCOT. <laughs> uh, uh, but their host is, and um, if the contract were structured in such a way that the host would optimize between the two and always just settle the difference in Bitcoin, then that would be the economically perfect outcome. But the, the industry has not progressed to having a creative profit-maximizing hosting agreement, and it does add some complexity. It adds some trust. There's some fidelity on doing settlement reconciliation for an ERCOT bill, which is, is um, an additional an incremental overhead for the accounting departments. So I, it, I'm confident it's, it's going to change, but it is, the current state of it is not optimized. But it's become more optimized over the last five years. It seems like there's been this progression of miners making mistakes around the power purchase agreements, learning from those mistakes, getting better PPAs. Mm -hmm. Now with ERCOT, and miners being homing more immersed within demand response programs. We've had a bit of trial and error over the last three years specifically with that, and people are getting smarter, and it seems like slowly but surely over time, the industry is going through this iterative process of figuring out what is the ideal situation from locking down the power to right. setting up the hosting agreement to then doing that profit share on top of that. Definitely, and there's been attrition of... Uh less efficient operators and we had uh major texas operator compute north um just talking about them lose their business um to their lender and it was being operated by usbtc for a while 
who bought it, who partnered with the lender, I think, to attempt to recover some of the assets. And now that portfolio has transitioned to Marathon. So Marathon acquired the Compute North built assets. Celsius is another one. Celsius actually, uh, I, I am good friends with the guy who was running the Celsius uh, fleet and they were actually good from an energy management perspective, but they had a, a critical flaw in their capital market structure, obviously. And the business model, the other part of their business wasn't. Yeah. Wasn't I mean, that, that, that's what I mean. You know, yeah. they were running an ongoing fraud and had <laughs> an asset and liability duration mismatch. So they, um, yeah, not necessarily an inefficient operator from the mining perspective, but a fraud. Yeah. So it's, it's getting better. It's getting better. And, uh, I just, I tweeted yesterday, you know, the, the addition of a base load consumer that is never contributing to peak demand periods on the grid is literally the ideal consumer that you can add for the health of a power market in a power grid. There's no better consumer. It's the inverse of a retail consumer, which around the steady state, most of the year, the ERCOT power grid demands between 40 and 50,000 megawatts of power. And last summer, record hot summer, peak demand was 83,000 megawatts, plus or minus a little bit. So you're talking about a, a 2x response from the generation fleet on the grid to be able to serve those customers. And the more Bitcoin mining baseload that is building and coming online here, the stronger a signal it sends to the generation community to invest here and commit to power generation resources. And then that Bitcoin mine load is completely gone during the peaks. So you get this great signal to the generator community, hey, come and build a power plant here. Uh, build your solar farms, build your wind farms, build your natural gas plants. Uh, and then that demand is there 90% of the year if it's economically perfect. And it's gone the 10% of the year when the residential community needs it. Do you see a scenario where we build generation capacity to let's say like 100 gigawatts, like far beyond whatever peak demand would be in the middle of summer, middle of winter, if we get bad winter storms here, and Bitcoin miners just soak up the excess capacity into perpetuity? That is maybe my naive brain. That's like what I think should happen. No, I, I, I think you're thinking about it from if like a very first principles. It may be a naive analysis, but it's first principles and it's correct. It, it is absolutely correct that especially with the market distorting price signal of the renewable energy production tax credit. I wrote about this over the weekend. You know, it's just like you can underwrite so a wind farm, here's an example. A wind farm has a capacity factor of about 30 to 35% of its nameplate output per year. What that means is you build a one megawatt wind turbine, you will get 35% of the year of uh, wind that is sufficient to create generation for that. So there's 8,760 hours in a year, you get about a third of that, so call it a little less than 3000 megawatts per year, 3000 megawatt hours per year of generation will come from that wind farm. That one megawatt wind turbine 
costs $1 million to build. Rough, rough estimates. The production tax credit will give you around $30 a megawatt hour for every megawatt hour that you generate. So that's 3,000 megawatt, and the production tax credit lasts 10 years from when you build. So it's 3,000 megawatt hours per year times 10 years, 30,000 megawatt hours times $30 a megawatt hour in production tax credit. It's a million dollars exactly. <laughs> so you could literally make $0 from selling energy and you will pay for Come the, out even. the wind turbine. Yeah. yeah, And that is what is happening. This is why we have 10% of the year there's negative, negatively priced power in ERCOT. And uh, even though wind farms are not generating any revenue from selling energy, they're still building them because the federal government is effectively subsidizing this power. I mean, Corman's Bitcoin mine is a decommissioned wind farm that decommissioned in its 12th year of operation because once the production's tax credits ended, they were never making money. So they had no no use for it. They were losing money. Mm, I want to dive deeper into this topic before we do that. Like, why was Cornman positioned to come take this asset and make it profitable. What do you do that makes this now profitable? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it, we're effectively the inverse of re, re, market distorted price signal from renewable energy. We are there to consume power when there is no demand from the grid, and then we are shutting off. Our, our behavior is as close to economic perfect, economically perfect as possible. Uh, and that's the business is attempting to be as economically perfect in consumption of power as we can be. And the big barrier to entry for a mining startup, if at least if you want to play on grid and and wholesale, I mean, you know, you know, off grid better than anybody. So, you know, the constraints there are uh, generator finance and, and all of that stuff um, for on grid. It's a substation and interconnection. The interconnection queue in Texas is two to four years, depending on where you're trying to go online and the long lead time items on a high voltage grid interconnected substation are one year at best, four years at worst. And you're talking about making somewhere between five and $20 million of CapEx before you even mine a Bitcoin. So you're waiting one to four years and making five to $20 million of CapEx to um, be able to mine Bitcoin. It's extremely, if you're a startup company, that's, and, and most investors who invest in a Bitcoin mining startup, they would like to participate in the price appreciation of Bitcoin. And if you do not deliver that, they get, they are not pleased with you as a fiduciary of their capital. So you've got to convince someone to, give you enough equity at a valuation that still makes sense for you or to give you an infrastructure loan to go and build a substation um, to make that happen. We were in, in that phase of our business. Um, we, we began our operations in upstate New York and we concluded not a great place to be any, to do anything related to Bitcoin, much less be a Bitcoin miner. And we did a nationwide search of the best place to do it. We identified West Texas and then we, found a wind farm owner who 
was very motivated to sell their assets because they were actively losing money on it. And we proved that we could develop the infrastructure to do this. And we had a team who could, who was going to figure out ways to innovate in this industry. And we convinced them to sell us their substation and transmission line from their wind farm as an equity round in our business. So we actually took a substation and a transmission line in kind as an equity contribution to the company. And that was a game changer. I mean, that was, that's the reason why we exist today. And that's a very creative way of doing a deal. Right. Creative. We had to convince people and, um, and the deal had so much hair on it that it was, um, there was virtually no other use for it. We had to renegotiate, uh, three ground leases, um, a joint ownership of the transmission line, a, a, an electricity supply agreement with the utility and a cooperative, uh, transmission studies with ERCOT. We basically had to do six or seven transactions successfully in order to do this. So the, the previous owner realized how daunting it was for someone to buy this asset and how much hair there was on the deal. And we were able to negotiate favorable terms that were effectively like, look, this is going to be really hard to do. And we'll pay you some money for just the option to let us try. So we paid them a million dollars at the close of the deal. And then upon the successful completion of these six or seven agreements, the transaction became structured as a little bit more in cash and mostly equity in the company. So they're the second largest investor in our company. And I, I believe though we will deliver them a great return over the long run on this wind farm that was effectively junk uh and they they turn they have a chance to turn trash into treasure through this company well that's why it's creative in two ways number one just the pure structuring of the deal basically acquire these assets in a smart way in a capital efficient way that allows you to operate very profitably and get a payback on your initial investment quicker than you otherwise would have and then two now that they're the second largest equity holder in your company, you have to imagine, I imagine, you probably know, you definitely know better than I do, but if they're building wind farms, they understand the economic issues that these type of projects have now that they're investor and seeing what you guys are doing. They're like, oh shit, this is a solution to this massive problem that exists. Is that happening? It's happening. It's happening gradually. Mm -hmm. And, um, across the spectrum of large institutional power market firms, you've got a huge range of Bitcoin acceptance and, and Bitcoin bullishness and orange pilling. Um, I'm surprised at how low it seems to be to me now, especially because Bitcoin mining loads can really add a lot of value to generation fleets one, one of the biggest problems in generation fleets is the forward power market in ERCOT right now is trading about $55 a megawatt hour for the next year uh, goes down a little bit the further that you go out and gas is natural gas is very cheap natural gas power plant power plants have a, a healthy operating margin if they can secure a long-term gas supply that's cheap and run it through a natural gas plant. Um, 
obviously wind and solar have no input fuel so it's it's even a stronger value prop for them because they have no sensitivity to a fuel input cost the big boogeyman in the, the power market is that the volatility distribution of power prices in ERCOT is so large right now and it's growing because you have if you're a generator in this grid you're absorbing power prices that go down to negative 20 for the chance to get power prices that go up to positive 5,000 per megawatt hour and if you are a gas plant and you say okay I'm going to hedge a year of power because sure it's going to be negative 20 it's going to be 5,000 I just want to lock that in and sell for $55 you it's very hard for you to structure what's called a unit contingent hedge which means as long as my power plant is operating normally and it doesn't have a catastrophic maintenance issue then you buyer of this offtake agreement from me you will get your power but if something happens to my plant you're not going to get your power uh from what I understand, the buyers are more and more reluctant to do unit contingent deals, deals that only deliver the power when the power plant is is operational. And um, what that looks like, basically, is if something happens with the power plant during the summer when it's the hottest, you're more likely to have maintenance issues when you're running your plant really hard and it's very, very hot. Um, if you sell that hedge and your power plant goes offline, you're short power. Your short power to the market and that opens you up to catastrophic risk as a company if you put a bitcoin mining load there even with crappy equipment I mean, you could put s19s there or, or s9s there um then you have you you don't need to hedge because you're you're selling electricity to the bitcoin protocol at you know let's say the worst machines on the market is the m30s it makes about 85 dollars a megawatt hour the best machine is the s21 you're making close just under 200 dollars a megawatt hour you've got a ppa with the bitcoin network it's a variable price ppa and it's volatile but you've got a ppa with the bitcoin network and you have a, a computing fleet that can power down 95 percent of its load in three seconds in response to prices so you would be able to Keep your generation fleet running. If your generator goes down, you just optimize the Bitcoin load against the real-time market. You already have that behavior there, but you then are gaining a call option where if your generation fleet is running and power prices go up, then you can deliver that power back to the grid and make make a lot of money there. And so this is a it's a very appealing proposition from the perspective of a of a power market operator power generation operation fleet it's it's just that they're they're not there i think that some of the bankruptcies especially some of the early movers the more open-minded bitcoin believers in the power industry they invested in some of these firms that had very bad outcomes in 2022 and that scared that scared people off Mm -hmm. because there's just a ton of career risk for the junior guy at XYZ Energy Co. who's like, yeah, we're going to go Bitcoin. We're going to do this. We're going to do a Series B and we're going to sell a PPA to these guys and this optimization deal. And next thing you know, you're in a bankruptcy court for two years and your CEO and, and your legal team are like, this guy's a joker. And <clears throat> yeah, that's, uh, 
we're not touching this. We're not touching this. Yeah. It's going to have to be built bottom up. It's going to have to be built by, in my opinion, by Bitcoin firms who already have Bitcoin risk. Like we're wearing Bitcoin risk every single place in our business. There's no incremental risk to us to go into power generation um, other than the operating risks of power generation, which are numerous and could easily destroy our company. At that point, in for a penny, in for a pound. That's uh, right. There's well. We're not adding an incremental uh, existential risk or career risk. It's already risk that we're wearing. And we know we're going to consume power. I mean, that's the, the most consistent part of our business is we will consume power. Yeah. And then bringing this back to the renewable energy credits, and particularly focusing on reliable hydrocarbon and nuclear. Nuclear doesn't, they're not able to take. They are now. They are now? Okay, now they are. That's good. Biden Biden uh, threw him a bone. Okay, that's good. It's good to hear that. But honing in on natural gas and coal facilities that aren't able to reap the benefits mm-hmm. of these credits, that's the thread I wrote over the weekend. I was in a, at an event in Palm Beach on Saturday, and there was a, a panel talking about the quote-unquote climate crisis and energy markets and uh, this is the question I brought up, just knowing what we've seen in the Bitcoin mining industry is the renewable energy credits have created such a distortion in the pricing mechanism of the market that it is impossible to spin up new reliable generation. Not impossible, but very hard because you have these uh, material amount of times with negative pricing that mm-hmm. really eats into the economic models of these reliable generation sources. And then it's just a, if you're not going to decommission these reliable sources via mandate, you just decommission them by distorting pricing mechanisms. And that's Mm -hmm. happening as well, where you have reliable sources that are up and running, but they have to decommission themselves because they're not economically viable. And I think it is imperative that the reliable generation sources that do not have the benefit of the wrecks that are out there really figure out a Bitcoin strategy because that is the only way that they're going to stay viable as long as these credits exist. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I wrote a, <clears throat> in response to the, the winter storm that we had here from polar vortex in January, I wrote a big tweet thread ab- about this, which is that, I mean, if if you look at what's happening here, so Texas is the second fastest or the fastest, I believe it is the fastest as of this year, the fastest growing renewable energy uh, grid in America by volume. It's the number one wind state. It's going to be the number one solar state and West zone. A lot of this is going in in West Texas. West zone is 92% renewable installation by nameplate capacity. So this is like the grid of the future over there in West Texas, which is somewhat ironic, given that it's uh, a major hydrocarbon economy, but it is effectively the grid of the future over there. So if you wanna see what these utopian grid of the future ideas look like with all intermittent renewables, you just go look at West Texas and you can see what happens. There's some, some system reliability issues because there's not as much inertia and rotating mass on the grid as when you have a bunch of coal plants and nuclear plants and combined cycle plants. So you have a generation fleet that's more sensitive to a voltage issue somewhere else on the grid, meaning you could have cascading trips of multiple generators and then they trip off multiple loads and 
you you could have blackouts with these largely renewable grids. Um, you also have higher prices on average. You have, you have lower prices for 90% of the year, but the remaining 10% of the year is actually pushing prices up with the same gas prices that we had uh, two or three years ago. You know, if you exclude the Ukraine invasion, when gas went to $10, the same natural gas, just to be clear, you have this a roughly the same gas price environment. The forward curve of power is twice as expensive and it's all coming from the shoulder hour volatility when there's no solar and the wind hasn't picked up yet. And so people are paying more for power and they get a less reliable transmission grid. So it is like this, the, the fastest growing renewable energy grids. I don't think that people who live in them understand that we are voluntarily degrading our standard of energy availability from a very first world standard to closer to a second world standard. And at the same time, we are paying more for a less reliable product. And that's just facts. I mean, it would be great if we could transition to a, a future where we, we harness the power of the sun via wind speeds and, and photovoltaic energy generation to, to power our species. But this transition right now, if you look at the early stages of it, it's like this is people are making a bad trade here. They're paying more for a worse product. And at the same time, the federal government is going further and further into debt to, to effectively subsidize this de-reliability, de-reliabilitizing process <laughs> of, of the power grid. Well, and going back to like the voltage synchronization and I learned Steve Coonan was at this event. He was explaining this over the weekend where basically with a natural gas plant, a nuclear plant, a coal plant within the turbines, they can synchronize like the push and pull Mm -hmm. through the transmission lines where that does not exist for wind and solar, which is enters, which introduces this destabilizing effect that could lead to these rolling blackouts. Correct. Right. Yeah. It's called voltage ride through, uh, effectively, um, gas and anything that has a turbine that has this rotating mass that is being used to generate electricity, uh, a, a, any turbine mechanism, the more rotating mass and inertia you have on, on a power grid, the right way to think about it is like, it's like pressure in your tires. You're just, it's, you hit a little bump in the road and you don't feel it. Uh, with uh, inverter-based renewables, uh, wind and solar, you lose that inertia and you lose, it's it's like your tire becomes slightly deflated. So you're going to feel a bit more shock. And then just to continue the busted ass analogy, if it works or not, it's like you hit a bump that's big enough and the bump actually hits your hubcap and it hits, it hits your, your, uh, your wheel axle or you know, whatever the appropriate automotive part is and it dents it and it knocks your, your car's alignment off. In this case, it's, you have a one system, one piece of the system trips and the sensitivity of the other pieces of the system will then trip in response to, to that. And they can solve it. The solution is that the utilities need to upgrade different hubs you know, uh, different big substations or connection points within the system with shock absorbing equipment and 
that then gets added into the transmission charges that consumers pay the next year. And so you have to have beefier transmission infrastructure to be able to absorb all of these shocks. And it, it's another way that costs go up. It's just not, not energy costs, it's transmission costs in that case. Yeah. So in your mind, what is the ideal mix of these unreliable generation sources and reliable generation sources? I, I see both sides where if you can get the cost of solar and batteries and wind low enough and, and subsidies push that demand to drive innovation in that uh, and you upgrade the grid, you do end up having a lower cost of electricity because you're not relying on fuels. Um, so you can see that it is utopian. It's far away. It's extremely difficult to understand if you have a constrained economic view. So just as an example, right now, because of the amount of solar that's currently installed in West Texas and the amount that is coming in West Texas, and so if we say West Texas is the grid of the future, let's look what this market looks like. There's nobody who will buy a power purchase agreement from a, a solar plant in West Texas. And so you can't get that project financed anymore. So we're, we're at, we're hitting a wall in terms of the willingness of financial market counterparties and lenders to purchase this power for a term that is sufficient to underwrite the lender on it. So that means someone's got to put equity to do to build a solar plant. And no one's going to do that because you're just giving up a, a cash return for a fixed return. Um, it just doesn't make sense to do that. And through that and a number of other constraints, including grid volatility, um, battery economic vi viability, and we could spend 30 minutes just talking about this, it's really hard to see how we get there without having a centrally planned economy that's extremely inefficient for a while. It's already somewhat inefficient. We have this distorting signal production tax credits. It's hard to see how we get there using our market economy. I think they should give nuclear a $50 production tax credit. They should give nuclear a $50 production tax credit. The government should subsidize the storage and, and removal of nuclear waste. And we can decarbonize our grid, since that's what a, a good percentage of the American people want and vote for, by building nuclear plants. And there's so much innovation with fission. You have uh, small modular reactors, molten salt reactors. You have really good fission technologies that are much safer than... Um, you know, the, the historical fission reactors that have melted down a few times in other places. And France, for all the things that, you know, they, uh, that they may not be the best at, like uh, winning wars or whatnot, <laughs> uh, they are great at nuclear. They have a great nuclear industry. They don't have a, his a history of accidents. And the French government subsidizes the removal and storage of nuclear waste. And now they're one of the best performing European economies in response to the, um, the shortage of gas and having to import all this LNG and having those pipelines cut off from Russia. The French economy, it, from an electricity standpoint, is doing great because they rely on nuclear. And if you look at, that, at the carbon footprint of 
the French power grid versus the German power grid. Now that Germany has decommissioned its nuke plants, it's relying on tons of wind and tons of solar and then lost its access to natural gas. They're burning wood pellets over there. They're burning wood pellets. They're (laughs) They're cutting down forests in North Carolina and we're shipping over wood pellets so that they can power their economy in Germany. Exactly. And, and they're paying more for power and they're, they're emitting more carbon than they were before. And it's extremely ironic that, uh, the German Green Party is so dumb. And they, they did suffer um, a bunch of defeat in recent elections. So the German people are waking up. They're, they're waking up. They're picking up on this being just really bad, uh, illogical policy. But they're losing major incumbent industry that's been around for well over a century. BASF is moving out. Some of the yeah. car manufacturers are moving out. They're like, it's too expensive. I can't do it here anymore. Oh, yeah. And that should be scary for the world. Historically, a, a weak German economy has not led to good things. <laughs> it is insane how we've gotten to this point. Cause that's, I wrote the piece in the Bitcoin times energy edition and I focused on Germany and it is insane what they did over the first two decades of the century. Like in 2002, their overall generation capacity was 115 gigawatts. 84% of it was nuclear coal, nat gas. Mm-hmm. Since then, they've expanded their generation capacity by more than 2x to 240 gigawatts. Uh, and the percentage of those three reliable sources of overall generation capacity is 34%. They decommissioned twenty more than 20 gigawatts of nuclear power that was over crazy. that time. I mean, it's a real head scratcher. Yeah, and that, and that that's really the question there. Because, like, you'd think you more than double capacity... People look at that like, oh, that's awesome. But over that same time period, uh, the amount of terawatt hours produced uh, in 2002 versus 2021, which is when I ran the analysis to, fell by 2%. Yeah. And it went from like 53 terawatt hours a year to 51 point something. Right. And then uh, the price of electricity for your average three-person German household went up 187%. Yeah over that time period. And I think that is the perfect case study that anybody in the world deploying an energy policy needs to look at and say, get, I get everybody wants to decarbonize. I personally don't think that is uh, what we should be doing. I don't think, I think the carbon hysteria is just that hysteria Mm. fear mongering campaign. I think we should be as efficient as possible and as clean as possible, but I don't think we should write these sources off just because they produce carbon emissions. Um, but putting that aside, just looking at what Germany did, it's like the, we have the playbook here. It does not end well. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And then, I mean, that we talked earlier about wind's capacity factor is 30% of the year, roughly. That's the, the number of megawatt hours you get for every one megawatt of installed wind. Solar is, is even worse. It's uh, it's about twenty um, percent, uh, fifteen to twenty percent, depending on how strong the photovoltaics are, and so, yeah, you can double or triple the installed capacity of renewable generators, but because they're not generating when necessarily when there's peak demand, because they don't have the ability to ramp up production in response to peak demand and it should be common sense like when when does peak demand come when it's really hot why is it really hot part of the reason is the wind isn't blowing um and 
the other exactly. end of the spectrum is when it's really cold and why is it really cold is because the clouds are blocking the sun <laughs> it's like <laughs> right yeah and uh and i mean wind in particular is really quite a i've gone as far as to say that wind power is poison for an electrical grid maybe a little extreme if there's enough batteries it would be okay but if you look at a wind production curve it is it, it peaks in the middle of the night when no one is using it and it declines to its lowest output level at the the hottest part of the day and every record power price day we had in ERCOT last summer was a low wind day people don't even look at load as the the driving factor for peak pricing they look at a metric called net load which is load um, minus renewables and so you could have a really hot day and um, and a ton of demand on the system but if the wind is blowing you're going to be okay you know when the solar is going to be generating and if the wind is blowing you'll be okay if there's no wind it could not even be necessarily that hot of a day and you'll have five thousand dollar megawatt hour pricing and it's the 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 electricity consumption peak every day of the summer happens at the same time it is uh between 4 and 5 p.m that is always when demand is peaking because the sun's been going uh ripping away for a long period of the day it finally starts to decline and now it is like it's following a clock 5 p.m power demand starts to drop off as it starts to cool down because the sun is less intense and that used to be the highest price point of the day you, you know it makes sense that's the hottest that's when power demand is the highest that should be the highest price the demand for the good is highest so that would be when the price is high and, and power of course is extremely temporally sensitive um it's a different price every five minutes in ERCOT. now because of uh the prevalence of solar the actual price peak has shifted out by t- over two hours so it's no longer four to five p.m it's now seven to eight p.m seven to ten p.m is where you have peak pricing because the sun has gone down and almost every day like a clock seven to ten this past august a little bit of june some of july and september the prices were at administrative caps of five thousand dollars so you've through this um price distorting and market distorting signal of production tax credit we've actually shifted the the peak price of power out to a vector that is no longer consistent where there's peak demand not ideal not not ideal not ideal so how do you square the like corn mint you guys are using wind west texas is the the future of energy grids everywhere mm-hmm is this just an anomalous, awkward period where we're figuring out how to use this, or is this simply pure central planning corruption that needs to be fixed? I see both sides, and mm-hmm. I love renewable energy. My business is economically viable and profitable because of this price distortion, and we are following the price signals that our centrally planning overlords are are telling us to follow and we our load being where it is is contributing to the demand to build more of these projects and so 
you know, in a way, this cheap energy is creating a, a flourishing economic environment for the Bitcoin community in West Texas, which is it's what's happening there right now, which is kind of cool. And I also think another really unique thing about it is that Bitcoiners are the only people who are, and not the only people, but they are consistently among the ranks people who regularly tell the truth about power markets. Like everything else that Bitcoiners touch, they rapidly devour the available information, they learn entirely new disciplines, and they become extremely educated on the all of the contributing factors to whatever situation is going on, whether it's you know distributed systems, engineering, uh, the history of money, you know the history of various schools of of economic thought, cryptography, um, chip fabrication, chip manufacturing, silicon, um, all of this, all of these disciplines, Bitcoiners, they learn about them, they start sharing their reactions to these ideas and how they interplay with Bitcoin, and then you. You listen to a Bitcoiner talk about one of those things. Like that guy's one of the probably the smartest people in the world on that particular thing. And now we see all these Bitcoiners who are really smart about power. They're just going in and trying to tell the truth. Cormant does not necessarily have a dog in the fight. We're taking advantage of the current distorted market. We're consuming lots of cheap power. We're profitably converting it into Bitcoin and I would say a second derivative of, yes, we don't have a dog in the fight. We're not going to tell you we want this generation type over that generation type. All we want is cheap generation. We want the cheapest possible generation. As a second derivative of that, we become stakeholders in wherever we are situated jurisdictionally. And I like, I have enormous exposure. Every employee of my company, every executive has enormous exposure to the reliability of the Texas grid the cost of the Texas grid and the overall well-being of our electricity marketplace as an orderly and function place, functioning place to do business. And so you get this second derivative where educated, open-minded, and unbiased Bitcoiners come in and, and tell the truth about this stuff. And I, I really don't think it's a coincidence that every Bitcoiner resoundingly says the same exact thing. We have to nuclearize the entire economy. And it's almost like the opposite of a politician where there is no NIMBY. There's there's n none of that. It's just unadulterated truth. And if you contrast that with a politician, you have this, this rabid voter base who's uh, hysterical about carbon and they're, you know, paving themselves to the roads and throwing paint on uh, throwing oil on paintings and you know, being hysterical. They're single issue voters on climate. It is what it is, uh, right or wrong, true or not. It is what it is. Getting elected requires pandering to those voters. And you can see that in the Venn diagram of I'm doing something about decarbonizing the economy and uh, ideal policy in terms of going to get me reelected. Nuclear is not in the middle of that Venn diagram because nuclear pisses people off. People don't want nuke plants in their backyard. They're not educated about nuclear safety and the improvements in the industry. And so building a bunch of dumb wind turbines, building too many wind turbines 
and solar panels that create a massive distortion in power markets, raise prices, and reduce reliability, that ends up being the Venn diagram place where you can appear to be doing something. It's going to be enough for four years to get you reelected, and you're not actually a long-term stakeholder in what you're doing. It's really bad politics. And I, I don't know how it's going to change. I don't know who's going to be the, the nuclear renaissance man. Nobody listens to Bitcoiners anyway, so it's... They should start. I think we just need to start buying these assets. It's happening, too. I've seen it. It's one Across of my... Across the U.S. People are buying coal plants. People are buying that gas generation. Yeah. Build, building a new plant's one of my long-term goals. Yeah. Well, it's a virtuous goal to strive for. Thank you <laughs> for striving for it. It's hard. I mean, they don't make it easy. Yeah. Every engineering decision in a new plant gets 10x the scrutiny of of a solar plant. Well, that's, I spoke with somebody who runs a nuclear power plant um, in Nebraska a couple of weeks ago, and they have this exact problem. They're overbuilding wind specifically, mm-hmm. and they, tw- I think 20% of the year, the nuke plant is negative pricing, and they just have to right. eat that because that's the other thing where mm-hmm. the pricing corruption due to the subsidies comes in is nuke plants, you can't just spin them up and down. Yeah, like you, you have to keep them on. Yep. And so these plants have to eat that negative pricing when yep. it comes and it's becoming uh, longer periods of time throughout mm-hmm. the year as these subsidies right. incentivize all this unreliable generation. Yeah, it's it's really, it is a truly distorting price signal because it, it is actively disincentivizing the type of generation that, that the grid needs to at least maintain reliability or improve it. Bitcoin fixes this. Just fucking put 100 megawatts of a mining operation behind the meter. Right. Give the finger to the wind farms when the negative pricing comes. Say, hey, we're producing revenue anyway. Definitely. Yeah, it it, it fits so well with reliable generation and avoiding negative prices. Yeah. Especially like the crappier rigs. Yeah. And luckily it does seem like the Bitcoin mining industry is becoming more smart about this particularly behind the meter to date it's mm-hmm. been a lot of front of the meter right um basically getting um electricity from a substation that's connected to transmission line i think a lot of people in the industry are like all right how do we get closer to the source let's go to the right power facility and get to the point before it even goes through the transmission line yeah you do avoid a bunch of uh transmission costs if you do that in ERCOT, you can get a nodal price instead of a, a zonal price and nodal prices tend to be lower than zonal prices because the every every power generation facility in ERCOT has a node it has its own pricing point on the grid and every load on ERCOT has uh, they don't have a specific nodal location. It gets blended into what's called the load zone. And inside of the load zone, all transmission charges to route power to different users throughout the grid are basically aggregated and then averaged and split across all consumers. So in the West load zone right now, because there's a lot of Bitcoin miners popping up, there's a lot of renewable generators popping up and Things are growing and moving uh, pretty fast out there. The trans the transmission costs to serve loads that are isolated specifically in the far west of Texas are really really high, uh, and so those costs then get subsidized across the entire load zone, 
because they what they don't want and it does make sense is they don't want a particular load in a very remote corner of corner of the grid to have to pay 10 times the cost of every other load in the uh in the grid for generators they're willing to to do that and they want to incentivize generation to go in the right places on the grid but for load there's very little tolerance for a particular electrical load to pay a drastically high price higher price and so the cost to serve that load is set by the market and by the generators and then it's averaged across everybody else uh, and as a result the the additional transmission charges to um, those loads that are in very remote places they end up driving up the average price everywhere else if you are behind the meter next to your own generator you don't you avoid all those charges and in the summertime when the entire generation fleet is ripping these transmission charges are relatively low it's called congestion or basis uh, but as soon as the weather cools down and the system has much less load on it so starting in october and basically going through may um, the basis has been averaging over ten dollars a megawatt hour so you're paying a full penny higher um, during those outside months so if you co-locate with a generator and just do a direct agreement with them you get that generator pricing and uh it is a huge advantage it's another it's another reason why the energy community should move close to the bitcoin community because the, the same thing could happen to them like if you have a a power generation node that's in the middle of 25 wind farms you're going to get the, the lowest prices on the grid for your power because you're producing power in a place where there is no user there are not very many users of the power if you just bring in a bitcoin mining load you're like well cool i'm out of that now i got my own got my own little guy right here and he just takes all the power i can give him and it seems like bitcoin adoption's picking up the price is going up that's another thing heading into mm-hmm. the having which is less than ten thousand blocks away after this weekend don't remind me <laughs> <laughs> but that it is an interesting dynamic heading into the having if this price appreciation continues leading yeah. up to it. it seems like a very unique dynamic that hasn't existed in a pre-having market today yeah, we've got rapidly rising difficulty we've got rapidly 50K. rising price right there just now. what 50k 50k, 50K. yeah 50k congratulations let's go we're at 50k so we haven't been above 50,000 since i think april 21. april of um 2022 or was it 2020 i think it was like no, because we, yeah, we peaked in November twenty one. We peaked at in the, just below seventy in November, and mm-hmm. then we stayed around. It's but been we, a, it's it might have been years. between. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, welcome back, boys. <laughs> Let's go. Cool. Yeah, exciting. Prices ripping, but as you said, hash rates absolutely hash screaming rate. right now. Yep, and fees. We've had a couple of periods where fees have been surprisingly high too. So it's it's been it's been a wild time. Yeah. So what uh what are you worried about heading into the having? I think the thing I'm most interested to see is what kind of difficulty adjustment happens um after the having. Seems like there's a huge range of predictions. And did you ever read the Coin Metrics report called uh the signal and the nonce? Yeah, did Kareem write that? Uh I I think so, but I'm yeah. not 100% sure. But effectively, what they did was they used nonce patterns in the 
you know, the machines that make up the majority of. Yeah, you can essentially uh, reverse engineer which machine is producing which nonce. Exactly. And so you can get a use the chain data to get a landscape of right. the inventory machines that are being used. Exactly. At any given point in time. And so you, you look at that report. It was released at the end of 2022. I'm not sure when the data set they used was, but as of the end of 2022, 60% of the network was um, S19, M30s, or or uh, lower efficiency machines. So right around 30 to 35 joules per T. And just looking at the, um, the break-evens of that equipment and where we are today, I think as the next difficulty adjustment is projected to be 9%. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Logan, look up the uh, estimated hash rate on mempool that space. Above 600. Now. It'll be above 600 with that adjustment. And uh, the, the break even, now Bitcoin keeps ripping, so this information may be stale. But let's say that after this 10% difficulty adjustment, and given the fact that we just probably rallied 10% over the last six or seven days, the break evens there are in the high 70s, mid to high 70s. 691. 691. 691. 24 hour estimate. So yeah. take that with a small grain of salt. Right. So you have break-evens in the mid to high 70s right now. And, you know, halving are going to bring that to, the halving is going to bring that to $37 a megawatt hour. 37 to $39 a megawatt hour. Not a lot of people who have power costs that is below, all in power costs that are below $37 a megawatt hour. No, it's 3.7 cents a kilowatt hour for anybody yeah. out there. And so I'm a big believer that we're going to have adjustments. We're going to have material downside difficulty adjustments um, in April and May. And in previous cycles, one stat I've been seeing a bunch thrown around is the number of days it takes, it has taken historically post having for hash rate to recover to its previous value immediately prior to the having. And it's been the, the last two halvings were between 30 and 70 days that hash rate fully recovered. But now we have so much of the hash rate is in ERCOT. And so you have April 20th having projection date of May. And then we immediately start the Texas summer where last summer during a Bitcoin bull market, or a little, little bit of a, an upward, upward momentum market, difficulty barely adjusted at all through the entirety of the um, June 15th through September 15th period. Because miners were participating in demand response. Yeah, because there was, there was active curtailment and and there was demand response, which was curtailing miners. And it was a pretty hot summer everywhere. So that was every um, Northern Hemisphere grid and ERCOT obviously being the biggest one with a very, very hot, high electricity price summer. So I think we could see that hash rate does not fully recover until fall October yeah October would be my prediction for when hash rate is going to recover to its previous level from before the having with the the caveat that if Bitcoin just goes on an absolute heater throughout the rest of the year all all bets are off yeah we run to like if Samson Mouse we run to 100k before the having happens that helps a lot of things that would be wild 
But then you have this dynamic too, two dynamics at play where the S21s are coming to market. It seems like Bitmain's going to mm-hmm. be able to produce a lot of them yep. month in a month out between 50 and 100,000 mm-hmm. per month. Most efficient, highest hashing machines that we've ever seen. They have a hydro unit, which is even more yep. efficient, higher hashing, which Wait, opens are up. Are a lot of people buying those hydros? I'm not sure. Yeah, me neither. Um, Sorry to interrupt you. No, I'm not sure. But we had that dynamic coming. Mm-hmm. And it seems like they're already being plugged in, which I would imagine a lot of the hash rate growth that we've seen over the last few weeks is yeah. 21s getting Just plugged in. And then you have slug of 21s. Then you have this confluence of events where the international markets seem to be seeing what's going on here in Texas mm-hmm. and begin to get into the hash hash race, if you will. Yeah, for sure. The other thing about the S21s is the um, research that's coming out on them is uh, they're very thermally sensitive so yes. that that hash rate will also be restricted in quite the summer a bit during the summer. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it could all come online and then there could be a big adjustment from lower uptime, all of those S 19s and M thirties going offline, a lot of curtailment for, um, power optimization. It's going to be interesting. A lot of them will be in low power mode throughout the summer. Oh yeah. Which they made easy with this, uh, this model. Oh, they did. Yes. Oh, good. So you, it's, uh, you don't need as much the third-party firmwares? No, you probably would benefit from it because you can probably get more modular with what you want to do, but they do have uh, stock um, power mode, high power mode, and low power mode. Do they have a curtailment uh, function that's that's good? I doubt it. I'm not sure. It's wild, man. Yeah. Man, is there any other industry where the... The manufacturer of a good just has hates us. such disdain for their customer base <laughs> and regularly mistreats them, and, and there's very little consequences. Well, there's only two, really one. Uh, maybe we can call it a duopoly, but it's trending towards a monopoly. Right. Um, they, well, I have heard good things about uh, Oridine. Oridine. Or Oridine is a. Are they the ones that did the. Uh, the, they basically had their ASIC at the North American Bitcoin Conference. Is that um, when they released it? I would. I don't remember seeing them there, but I'm sure that they did. Um, Marathon disclosed a, a seed investment in them early on, and um, they're now releasing their first ASICs, uh, and uh, they're good, and they are. They have the functionality that a Texas-based Bitcoin miner would care about. They can underclock, they can overclock, they curtail really quickly, uh, and you don't need to use third-party firmware. It's all built right into the the miner firmware, the stock firmware, and it's a great toolkit. Yeah, so let's dive into this a little more for anybody who may be ignorant to this dynamic in the mining Mm -hmm. industry, which is you have these machines you get them from the manufacturer. The manufacturer has a firmware that basically runs the machines. <clears throat> but miners, particularly in ERCOT, need to do more with their machines, particularly if they want to participate in demand response. Mainly, they need to be able to turn down very quickly, mm-hmm. um, which the stock firmware does not enable. And so you have to go to third-party firmware services that essentially jailbreak the firmware on your ASIC, inject their own firmware that can then communicate with a pricing API to, to do all this in in efficient manner. 
uh, yeah. And, uh, the, the core features that you would want, well, take a step back. You sort of have two main categories of functionality. You have performance, meaning how many Watts can I run through my chip and, and the more Watts that I run through my chip, I may lose efficiency a little bit, but I'm going to get more Bitcoin out of it because I'm going to be submitting more valid shares to a pool. I'm going to be attempting more solutions at a, um, a successfully mined block. Then you have a separate functionality, which is the ability to respond to either a signal, which is called a base point or a frequency base point from the grid operator, which will say, hey, I need you to set your machine to this. Uh, and you have to respond to that quickly. Or you're responding to a free market power price input or the ERCOT pricing API prices every five minutes. You respond to that data and then you power down the miner or continue mining um, based on that, that price input. So uh, n- neither of those functionalities comes out of the box with um, the existing ASIC manufacturers that you would know. And so, like you said, these third-party firmwares effectively jailbreak the, the, the miner and they allow a, a non-manufacturer firmware to run on top of it. And these firmwares are great and they're, they're way better. And on the overclocking and underclocking side, it's not really surprising that the manuf- ASIC manufacturers aren't thinking like this, maybe because they're not really mining that much, maybe because they don't focus as much on cooling, but cooling is so important. It is the name of the game. This is why immersion and hydro, uh, why immersion is sort of dominating now in terms of performance and hydro is the next level of it. Um, immersion is your miners are submerged in an oil bath and it becomes a fluid dynamics equation instead of an aerodynamics equation. So you're just constantly pumping oil that is colder than the chips through the miners because the oil is coating 100% of the surface area of the chips instead of air, which is not hitting anywhere near 100% of the chips. You're able to dissipate more heat off of the chip into the fluid than the fluid is exhausted outside of uh, the tub that the miners are sitting in and it's put through some kind of radiator um, dry cooler heat exchanger type of thing and it's a constant loop so you have uh, a big plumbing equation you have a big fluid dynamics equation and that helps you draw more heat off the chips the reason why that's important is because the ideal operating temperature of a chip is 60 degrees celsius plus or minus and then the you can run a ton of wattage through a chip way more than it's it's um, standard operating spec as long as the chip stays at 60c it's not going to cause any harm to it so these things are incredibly robust and there's no other the reason why the ASIC manufacturers maybe aren't that clued into this or they don't care is because there's no other computing industry that treats a computer like a Corvette you know <laughs> where they're just like dump the fuel in, let's go. We want to get as many horsepower out of this thing as possible and as many RPMs as possible because it's a vanity engine. Bitcoin mining is effectively like that because each incremental watt of electricity you push, th- you push through gets you an incremental quantity of sats um, or fractions of a sat um, in the case of a watt. 
And so you have this, this big thermal optimization. What that ends up looking like in Texas, if you have a good cooling system, is you're able to overclock your machines, sometimes as much as 20 or 30 percent in in the winter when the ambient temperature is cold enough and in the summertime you're actually you actually have to do the opposite like we're out in the west texas desert it gets well above 100 degrees almost every summer day and so the the thermal the the cooling capacity thermally speaking of our cooling system which is normally very good at dissipating heat it actually is reduced because the containers are hotter, the air outside that you're using to cool, the fluid is hotter, everything is hotter. And so you have to reduce the amount of wattage that you're pushing through the machine in order to target that 60 degrees Celsius temperature. And so what this company, Oridine, has done really well from what we understand, we haven't tested them yet, but we've talked to enough smart guys who we trust that have tested them, is they allow you to tune the minor voltage uh, and frequency up, which gets you a different wattage draw from the stock setting. You can go way down. And and when you do that, you drastically improve the efficiency of the machine. You can also go way up and you decrease the efficiency of the machine. And the reason why that's important is because if power is zero, if the cost of electricity is zero, you want to push as many watts through your mining machine as humanly possible because you don't particularly care if your machine goes from... Uh, 28 joules of terahash efficiency to 36 joules of terahash, you don't really care because the input cost of that power is zero. And, you know, in Texas, we have 10% of the year that's negative pricing. We have $0 pricing for electricity all the time. So these these Oridine guys have made a miner that is very well fit for an electricity market like Texas that has a lot of zero pricing and has a lot of very high pricing. You can get paid a lot to curtail. Uh, and so it has... This is like the what the minor firmware of the future should look like. And by the way, firmware is expensive. I mean, you pay one to two percent of your revenue for firmware, so it's it's a huge cost savings to buy from them. Mm-hmm. And how big of a splash are they make in the market? Like how many machines can they produce? Yeah, I mean, it's starting an ASIC company is really tricky because yeah, that's the thing I worry about most. It's yeah, extremely capital intensive takes a long amount of time mm-hmm. and that time well that's <clears throat> maybe we're hitting an inflection point where the time aspect is not as uh is not as important as it was in the past where you'd have these large jumps from seven nanometer to five nanometer to three nanometer we're literally reaching physical limits on these chips that um you're, you're likely not going to have the step function improvement Agreed. at the chip level yeah. that has existed in the past so the concept of asic modification has been talked a lot in the yeah. mining community over the last five years. And if we're getting close to that point, maybe the barrier to entry for a new ASIC manufacturer is, is a bit lower. I, I do agree with that. Um, I still think that it's really, it's very hard. Yeah. Um, simply because from the perspective of an operator, we probably are picking the machine that we're going to run six months out from when we when we run it or when when we even buy it um so you're thinking about what's the form factor of this machine um what's the availability of this machine from a pricing perspective uh and is it is it gonna 
function the way that I believe. You know, there have been historically, even with Bitmain, the S17 had a failure rate. Bad epoxy. Bad epoxy. The heat sinks were falling off. You had a massive failure rate on that. So there's even risk with with the existing manufacturers. Then what was that one that kind of looked like Mountain Dew? A uh, new miner or something? Like yeah, that? new miner. That had a, a 50% failure rate. And people who bought those... Got wrecked. And you go back Dragon Mints. Yeah. Down the line. Dragon Mints. So there's a huge risk in buying the first batch of ASICs from a brand new manufacturer. And yeah, if you're designing for a particular ASIC, it's you have to really commit to it. And so as a premise... Uh, it should trade it at a discount to a Bitmain or a MicroBT. You know, even MicroBT trades at a slight discount to Bitmain still after, and it's been around for five years. And so if you're going to be a new ASIC manufacturer, you're probably, you need to price at a 25% discount to the market in order to compensate your customers for taking a risk on a new batch. And then that gets better and better and better as time goes on. But it's, so it's, one part, ASIC commodification and reaching the state of the art in the chip industry. And then that's the other part, consumer mindset and, and consumer psychology of taking that risk. This is, it's not a risk to be taken lightly. If you're a miner, you could literally lose your whole business. Yeah. No, that's the other thing, leaning into like ASIC commodification. And we've talked about this on Peter's podcast, but it's worth repeating. Like even within Bitmain alone, like the PSUs, like right. with the power supply units that literally allow you to plug your machine into a wall like they're not uniform across every model right and that that blows my mind it's like how have we not gotten to a point where it's like you can get an order and expect a certain psu right even between like different model different xp batches have different psus remember when they made one version of the j pro like two inches longer yeah. than the previous one yeah and it caught everyone off guard yeah it fucked up all their heat circulation right i mean if you're running immersion two inches is a lot yeah that's you know you, you design an immersion tank based to, off the form factor specs exactly because you you <laughs> need to have uniform flow rate and flow distribution of the fluid through all of the miners and so little changes to the form factor fuck up the physics it could totally screw it could screw up your entire <laughs> cooling system yeah if you're trying to be extremely efficient with fluid we're so early like that it's like because we were in uh, you weren't were you you were in nashville no were you no i didn't you go one. Uh, we were talking to i'll uh, be there for uh bitcoin conference though there was um at the energy and mining summit nashville last month there was incumbent data center guys that are getting into Bitcoin mining. And that was like their one like piece of feedback it was like, I can't believe that none of this is uniform yet. Like this is such slapdick right. activity. The fact that you guys put up with any of this is insane. Um, I know it's uh Bitcoin miners are just rabid risk on consumers. Yeah. It is the wild. It's like a digital wildcatting, yeah, yeah, to an extent. Plus, you really don't have much recourse. You know, it's no, it's a Chinese vendor, and they send you something. You got to plug it in, no matter what. You've got it. You got a, a year. And the first three months are critical in a rising difficulty environment, and it's 
Yeah, I mean, an American ASIC manufacturer would be great. Yes. I could see, I actually talked to some folks about this, and it, it almost got off the ground, but it didn't. A, a cooperative, an American-based ASIC cooperative, where a couple of really good chip guys got together and started a nonprofit cooperative where you put a little bit in for the IP and and the tape out and all of that just to get the process rolling and then everybody got a machine at cost so you just you bought the fab time the foundry time you got paid back in ASICs and and you look what happened with the the Intel ASIC it, it was a first iteration at that with a reputable chip manufacturer and that was that did not work out well for the firms who participated in that. No. History has been really unkind to people who take incremental risk in Bitcoin mining. Whether it's incremental financial risk, um, like US taking on USD debt, getting into anything upstream in manufacturing the ASICs, trying a brand new ASIC manufacturer, buying their equipment for the first time, control boards, even power supplies. You know, it's, Building it, your own data centers. That risk I think you need to take. I think you need to take the risk of building your own data centers. And I think you need to take the risk of getting as close to the wholesale market of electricity generation on power side. Those risks are, you can control them really well. They do require investment, but you can control them much better. Yeah. Because think about it, if you rely on a third-party equipment vendor for your data center infrastructure, that's also a risk. Yes. As we know. But then you have to weigh the risk of the time. Because like going back to that, that's the name of the game. And I think, again, the whole industry has been going through this iterative process, and that's one thing that encourages me this cycle. It seems that the industry is getting smarter about when they purchase the ASICs and where they are in terms of infrastructure build out with those buys. Because you want to buy those ASICs, get them delivered, and plug them in. Immediately. Immediately. Yeah. Which last cycle was not happening. Right. And it's still happening today. Today. Yeah. Rackspace is scarcer than Bitcoin, it seems, right now. Is it? It was for a while. Right now, I mean, I think... I'm, I'm not in the market, so I don't know. I think the market is responding, but... Yeah, we don't have there any. There was a time in 21, 22 where after the Chinese migration, people are like, yeah, we'll take your ASICs, we'll plug them in. They're like, oh, shit, we have nowhere to plug them in. Yeah, I know that the, yeah, they, the ASIC manufacturers were doing a lot of hosting deals trying to get XPs plugged in. We, we don't host. One of the coolest things about our company is we have no customers. It's a lot less stress. My last business... We had a lot of customers, and my two business partners in that company, they both love they love that about this business. Technically, we do have a customer. It's an algorithm. Mm-hmm. Our customer is a distributed... Hashcash out 256. Yeah, it's a, it's a distributed computer yeah. algorithm. That's technically that's a customer of the Bitcoin network looking to... Yeah. Transactors are your customers. They are, but also just the the bitcoin code yeah that that's where the vast majority of our revenue comes from is the the distribution schedule of the original algorithm yeah and then there are some incremental p 
people doing God's work and paying me fees, uh, <laughs> paying us fees. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is, I'm the king of controversy on this topic because I like fees, but I like fees too. All right. I, I, I'm very indiscriminate about fees. I, I want anybody who wants to pay me fees to be able to do so. One of the things I think is that's going to be the, the coolest development over the next 10 years is if, if we assume that fee markets are going to materialize and become um, the majority of contribution to mining revenue versus the way they are now where the, the subsidy is. I mean, in, in this block era, I think it's averaged 1 to 20 subsidy versus fees, maybe mm-hmm. maybe 1 to 17. When we have, it's going to be 1 to 10. Then we have in 2028, it's going to be 1 to 5. If, if fees continue to grow, you could see an entire block epic to be parity between fees and subsidy in the... Um, uh, the you know the 1.6 block reward era 1.5 uh, and change whatever it's going to be in 2028 to 2032 but what should happen or, or what i predict will happen that's going to be really interesting is the block times are going to be much slower during periods of peak demand that that phenomenon is going to accelerate like in the texas summer block times are much they they don't grow um at as consistent of a rate as they do during the non-summer months in Texas. And you're actually going to see that more intraday where, like, let's say it'll be an afternoon period. Block times will start to slow as all the miners begin curtailing. That will have a reflexive effect where the fee market jumps up, starts to jump up. And then you'll see this inverse correlation between LMPs and fee markets where the fees could rise up so much that it actually pushes the LMP of electricity to become attractive to mine. So all this hash rate will come online in response to the rising fee market. So you'll have this like crazy interplay between. But you imagine over time it'll start like this, but it'll eventually get to like. Poof. Yeah, it, could, it will eventually become very efficient, but it's. I think you could start to see a long term trend where off peak electricity has materially faster block times over a period of entire year than on peak electricity. What was once the, uh, the BitMEX payout fee spike will, will turn into the, <laughs> yeah. the uh, energy price volatility and curtailment. Yeah. This fee spike elegant intersection of fees and LMPs. Yeah. For those who are unaware, like BitMEX, they would do it what every Monday morning at 9am they do payouts or something like that. I, I believe that's correct. And it, it, you could visibly see it on the chain. It's like, ah, fees are up. Right. Max is paying out all their users. Yep. Uh, I was thinking about that, uh, how far we've come since the that March 2020 BitMEX flash crash. A lot has happened. Yeah. Yeah. Turn the engines off. It Arthur. was crazy to think that that, Arthur. Was, that Bitcoin almost, you know, BitMEX was the dominant exchange in terms of liquidity. In, in March of 2020, and they only accepted Bitcoin as collateral, and and blocks were full, fees were through the roof, Bitcoin crashed over 50% in like a couple of hours, overnight. It was trading eight. It was trading eight thousand on whatever the, the overnight 11th. period. Yes, right around there, it's trading eight thousand, and 
within a few hours it was trading 3300 and so nobody could get additional collateral into bitmex because the blocks were so full and the fees were so high some of them were cheaping out and all of the collateral that was on there which was supporting bitcoin long positions like if you wanted to buy bitcoin on bitmex during that time you could only post bitcoin as margin collateral so your margin collateral was was crashing in value nobody could get additional margin call margin collateral in there so everyone was getting liquidated uh and then arthur just pulled the plug <laughs> there was definitely a meeting after that with like all right guys this is you were th- you guys are done <laughs> yeah yeah you have to have a, a u.s dollar i mean i know people who were running funds that were basically yep trading on bitmax right and they didn't put a high enough fee on their transaction and could not uh, meet their their collateral call that was probably the sickest the sickest buying opportunity in the hit in the history of bitcoin yes in terms of what was going on in the backdrop from a macroeconomic perspective with money printing and all that and Eating then up you to just a having into having yeah exactly into a having and you got a an opportunity to buy bitcoin at 3500 bucks coin one I last was, time i was so parker and i recorded a podcast with kyle bass from Heyman capital literally 5 p.m before all of this happened and mm-hmm. I, I think the last question i asked parker it's like what's going to happen with bitcoin he's like i don't know just make sure you have your your coins in self-custody <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> thank god for satoshi I stayed up that night. I was like smash buying throughout the night. I was like, oh shit, 5,000, 3,000, 500, like boop. Yep. I bought a bunch too. Yeah. It was good. And then people got stimulus. Yep. So everybody could roll their stimmies into Bitcoin. Yeah. It's a crazy time. It was. And then a year later, meme stock uh, with uh, deep deep fucking value deep value amc gamestop GameStop. did you watch dumb money yet no is that the it's a movie on it oh it's pretty good that was one of the funniest most fun times of my life i remember every day just getting up and just like seeing the moves in the markets and and the memes flying around on twitter the the meme culture around that time i think i don't want to say it peaked we can get to that level again, but that that is the last all time high in meme mm-hmm. culture. Is around there. I love. I'm a big meme culture guy. Same. It's yeah. uh, it's good for the soul. It is, and it's actually we laugh about it, but I do think it is one of the most potent tools we have to take away power from these people. Who probably do not deserve it. You need to ridicule these people. Memes are the most effective way at ridiculing these people. They definitely are. Yeah, and there's nothing that ridicules them more than cryptocurrencies based on memes of dogs <laughs> speaking broken English that are worth tens of billions of dollars. Is this Bonk? Uh, no, I don't think Bonk is worth tens. I, Doge is worth 10 billion. Oh, Doge. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's three dog coins that are worth more than a billion dollars. Bitcoin's worth more than a trillion now. Bitcoin's worth more than a trillion, and guess what? Even our little dog coins are worth more than a billion. They're worth more than a billion. Where do you think this all goes? Are you optimistic? Um, Cautiously optimistic? Everything. Um, Bitcoin, mining. Yeah, I'm, 
I'm so optimistic. It's yeah. I'm blinded. I I have this long running belief that's becoming more hardened by the day. Is that in order of operations to the success of Bitcoin and the front end of the order of operations lies in the hands of the mining industry mm. and convincing the energy sector like right. do this. Right. And I become extremely more hardened in that belief and more optimistic as time goes on. Even though there's still a disconnect and not everybody gets it. I think people like you paving the way and others in the energy sector beginning to have the light bulb go off is creating the environment where we can really have this escape velocity in right. terms of the acceptance of Bitcoin outside of this bubble that we've been in. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, so we, we launched our, our flagship financial product last year, which is our, our Bitcoin denominated bond. Yes. And we raised uh, just under a thousand Bitcoin. It was a, a Reg D uh, 506C offering, which is an, an SEC registered offering for accredited investors only. Um, the only way you can do lending products with retail is if they're callable. And if you have a callable loan, that's how you're, um, that's how you have an asset and liability duration mismatch like Celsius and BlockFi had. But so we launched this product. The Bitcoin community liked it a lot. Um, we did it on, on pretty good terms. It was a venture debt. So you got a bunch of warrants in our company and you get a 10% yield on Bitcoin and you're at the top of our capital stack. You're first lean over all the assets of the company. Um, and, you know, the way to think about this is we're taking this Bitcoin, we're turning it into the machines that create Bitcoin and and the, you know it's a it's a very secure form of commodity production finance. It, it's like borrowing barrels of oil to go and build an oil drilling site and to pay your your leases and and get your drill rig all set up. And so there's nothing like it in commodity production finance because obviously oil has is not transportable. There's tremendous storage costs. There's there's gravity differentials between different types of oil. It's not a fungible commodity, uh, and natural gas, same thing, doesn't work. You could do it with gold. I'm surprised it never existed in gold, but I know it is what it is. It comes with pretty high storage cost. It's, yeah, high high storage cost too. Absolutely, but Bitcoin is you know it's a monetary commodity. It's it's instantly transportable. It's fungible. Uh, you know, there's there's zero friction in it, and so it is this is a perfect method of commodity production finance and where i'm going with this uh shill of my company's uh this is, uh, i'm happy you brought it up because that's what i wanted to end with is this okay good but here's here's our kind of big thesis on it and i tell this to people and they so like all right cool buddy uh <laughs> is like we said before corman has no customers our, our customer is a distributed algorithm distributed software platform and occasionally it is individuals who who want to pay fees you know, it's a five percent individuals want to individuals and firms paying fees 95 percent a software algorithm that software algorithm is the single largest non-state buyer of electricity in the entire world and growing at, at 15 gigawatts approaching nine, 700 exahash yeah 900 uh 90, 95% uptime 
times 16 gigawatts. It's the single largest buyer uh, and most consistent buyer of electricity in the entire world. Bitcoin denominated finance, power plants together. If you're converting energy into Bitcoins, Bitcoin should be the financing instrument for power plants. And you get those two things together. Now, admittedly, right now, it's there's obvious reasons why this is not happening. The having is one of them. Because a power plant amortization schedule, meaning you invest X in CapEx, you expect to get your CapEx back in Y years. Y years is about 10 years. And you're going to have, depending if you time the cycles perfectly, you're going to have two halvings during that 10 year period. You might even have three if you screwed up, I think. Uh, and so if you take a bunch of Bitcoin and use it to buy a power plant and then plug in miners and go through the whole cycle there during that period, you're going to, your Bitcoin denominated revenue is going to go down pretty, pretty materially per unit of hash rate during that time period. And so it, it becomes hard to align the amortization schedules of the power plant with the mining operation. Dogecoin has no having, so it's actually, you could probably finance a power plant with Dogecoin. Uh, Dogecoin denominated debt, FYI, just Doge shill. But uh, obviously the Doge market cap is immaterial and it's a, it's a significantly worse store value than Bitcoin because it has perpetual issuance because there are no havings. But what's really cool about Bitcoin is that in that world where the fee pressure and, and the fees rise to be more than the subsidy, it, it mitigates the effect of the halving successively. And so I think then my big prediction in the next decade is people will start to use a little bit of Bitcoin in their cap stack. You know, it, you would be crazy to not have a power plant, a Bitcoin mine, a little bit of Bitcoin denominated debt, a little bit of USD equity, a little bit of USD debt. Like that's what the right cap structure looks like. Then you have an indiscriminate buyer of energy. You can sell that energy back to the grid anytime you want. If Bitcoin flies around and there's a bunch of volatility, your Bitcoin denominated financing piece protects you from that. And the revenues uh, in a period where your Bitcoin mining revenue goes down expressed in dollars per megawatt hour, your opportunity to optimize power and sell it back to the grid goes up. The more that the Bitcoin break even goes lower and lower, the more that you'd be curtailing your Bitcoin mining load and selling the power back to the grid. So the interaction of these markets where you have a flexible generation stack and a, f and a flexible Bitcoin mining stack that also has this, that fee pressure dynamic mm -hmm. um, with block times getting slower, it just all of like, it fits together so elegantly. And uh, I'm a big, that's my big uh, prediction. That's my crazy prediction is Bitcoin denominated finance for power generation becomes a thing. I don't think it's that crazy. Yeah, I know, I think but you're a good idea. You're on the uh, the absolute <laughs> fringe of, of This is how we get to a type 1 civilization. Like you need these Yeah. You need these types of and, that's, and again going back to like the first order of operations in the energy sector being so important. Like that's the big question. It's like how do you go from like a dollar reserve system to a bitcoin reserve system and like this is part of that process where you basically team up. Right. You have two of the most important tools that humanity leverages, money and energy, team up. And then from there, you can disconnect from the dollar system and right. begin to have the Bitcoin standard materialize. Here we have a little microgrid. 
yeah. where you have a little a community that's organized around a power plant, a Bitcoin mine, and a, and short range transmission infrastructure, and you just have you have economically perfect consumption of energy. You have incentives for uh, demand response there. I do think some of the cool things that are happening with residential demand response are are another interesting step in this direction because right now texas has started to do this a little bit but it's it's blown up a couple times where residential consumers can could participate more directly in demand response and you know actively turn off their ac when power prices get high and it would reduce their power bill dramatically um that getting the largest consumer, largest and most indiscriminate consumer of peak power, the the residential consumer, to be more price sensitive, also is a going to be an interesting restoration of um, free free market, like real price discriminate free market consumption. Because right now it's you know you you just get your power passed through by your retail electric provider. There's not a lot of sensitivity to when you've consumed. It's just a big blended rate that gets distributed out amongst everybody. And that's the reason why the average residential consumer in America pays 16.5%, 16.5 cents a kilowatt hour for power. And the wholesale market is four to five cents. Yeah. And they're, they're overpaying by a factor of three for their power because there's no price sensitivity on them. I think that's also a cool development that, that plays really nicely with Bitcoin. In terms of, in terms of the the way that let's say the coincidence of supply, demand, and price sensitivity all happening in electricity markets right now. Right now, you have a lot of dumb uh, electricity market participants. Not dumb, but not sophisticated, not savvy. Now you have um, smart home technology and and that like a tech enabled digitally native power grid where the whole home can respond quickly you know you're not like honey run out to the breaker in the garage and <laughs> you know, uh, open the breaker it's like no the this the home all the systems are connected to a price feed and the price feed is ingesting the real-time wholesale market electricity cost and if you are a person who doesn't want to pay a 400 dollars power bill in the summer, you just say, you know, I'm willing to sweat a little bit from 4 to 6 p.m. Yeah. And that's family sauna time now. Yeah. You know, we, make a, we make a thing of it. Or we, <laughs> we have a, like a cold plunge or a cold pool in the backyard, and we have family pool time from 4 to 6 p.m. Instead of ripping the, apps, the AC at the absolute peak of transmission charges and electricity prices on the power grid. That makes sense. Yeah. That would help obviously service demand in other areas. I'm just trying to think how Bitcoin plays into this, like the Bitcoin miners, less incentivized. Because the, the Bitcoin case. miners are already the the inverse of the residential consumer. Yeah. And so what it looks like is you have a power grid that's like, it's a bit more reasonably sized. It actually works better with intermittent resource and battery. So in the world that the Inflation Reduction Act gets renewed again and then again, and the government endlessly subsidizes the the development of renewable resources and batteries, and they insist that that's the direction that the species go 
at least in North America, for our energy needs, then you start to have, okay, you have Bitcoin mining, which is price sensitive inverse of residential peak demand. You have residential demand response and participation there with a direct insensitive, a direct incentive for price sensitive electricity consumers to reduce during the peaks. And so the way it manifests is you don't have a 40,000 megawatt differential between steady state electricity demand on the grid and peak demand. You have a much narrower thing and you have more perfect electricity markets is, yeah. is the way that that kind of. That's the goal. Yeah. You're late to your call, but. Oh, am I? Yeah. But I think this is a good place to yeah. end it. That's okay. Very optimistic. This is a great chat. It's always a great chat. I'm happy yeah. we're able to obviously record it with Peter, but on this show, we're able to record it. For those, Jamie and I go way back to New York. We were both, we're both New York refugees living in Texas now. Yeah. Uh, Your hair was much shorter back then. Yep. And you didn't have a beard. I was envious of you when, when you moved to Texas all those years ago. It's like, man, save some for me. Well, you came and got yours. I got mine, yeah. <laughs> you came and got yours, Jamie. <laughs> that is certainly clear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank, thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you for coming. We're going to have to do this much more often. You got to come to Austin more. I know you're in West Texas. I'm, I may actually be uh, getting a place here. Yeah, get a place here. Yeah. Come hang out here. Because I think... Uh, the West, way you, West Texas is great, though. It doesn't sound that great. I but. mean... Isolation has its benefits. That's true. It's big, wide open landscape. There's a lot of liberty. Now here, feels like there's a lot more rules here than in West Texas. Yes, uh, a lot less rules compared to New York City, though. That is true. Which is the trade off that I'm willing that to is make. True. Yeah, fair enough. Good trade. Good trade. But West Texas, there's some real freedom out there. Yeah. Let's agree to do this. Maybe you'll come west a little bit more often, and I'll come east a little more often. We can make that agreement. I All need right. to get out. To Done West deal. Texas. Done deal. That's a deal. That's a deal. We're going to end it on the deal. Peace and love, freaks. Dickie!